recently I had an experience that really just sort of touched me and really just made me remember why I became a physician. And I think it's helpful because sometimes, you know, when you feel like, oh, all I'm doing is dictating into my notes and I do paperwork for four hours a day and I fight with insurance companies, that's really why I went to medical school. It's good when you have those experiences to just uh, just reinforce why we did this. And the experience was that I had a patient come to me that had rheumatoid arthritis and they told me that they had recently lost like 50 pounds unintentionally over a four and a half month time span. And I started thinking, oh man, this guy's totally got cancer. He's absolutely got it. So I went looking for it and I did a CT of his chest, abdomen and pelvis and I found that he had a carcinoid tumor in his abdomen. So I called him and I was talking to him about the CT results and I was talking to his wife and um, sorry, I'm, I almost get emotional when I talk about this because it was just so powerful. I, after I told the gentleman that I found something in his abdomen that almost certainly was going to be cancer, he stopped and then just said, thank you. Thank you so much. And I thought, you, you, you know, you realize I just told you you have cancer. Thank you is not usually the words that I hear right after that. And he was just so grateful and so appreciative. And so was his wife. And it just really sort of reinforced, you know, this, this is those moments are what sustain you. And that's what I went into medicine for. Welcome to this podcast for the Ogden Surgical Medical Society. Your hosts today are two members of the OSMS board, Dr. Scott Moore on the faculty at Weber State University and Jason Hoagland, a pediatrician at Tanner Clinic. You feel very privileged to have with us today, Dr. Ryan Hogan. Welcome, Ryan. Oh, thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome. Um, Dr. Ryan Hogan is a native of Ogden, Utah. He is the youngest of six children. He graduated with a degree in microbiology from our locally beloved Weber State University before earning his medical degree at the wonderful University of Utah. He took his residency in internal medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University and brought his experience back to the U where he completed his rheumatology fellowship. He brings his considerable talents to Tanner Clinic in Layton where he practices general rheumatology. He and his beautiful wife are the parents of five beautiful children ages three to 10. He loves taking care of his rheumatology patients as well as spending time with his family in the outdoors as much as possible. And not just because it allows for more physical distancing during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you have any conflicts of interest to disclose? No. <laughs> I saw a rheumatology conference recently that was virtually and the first thing the woman said was, I don't have any conflicts of interest, but if anybody's interested, I'd love to have one in the future. <laughs> but, so no, I have no conflicts at all. Okay, so first question, Dr. Hogan, is it hard for you at Tanner Clinic with your name being confused with a legend like Dr. Hoagland? No, not as much, I'd say. I haven't gotten too many of uh, Dr. Hoagland's patients. They're a little bit shorter than mine usually, so <laughs> I can sort them out that way. Unfortunately, though, there is another Dr. Hogan at Tanner Clinic with one G that uh, that has created some issues where I get people showing up at his office trying to see me and vice versa, and I get results that randomly pop up in my inbox. I'm like, ah. I don't know this pelvic ultrasound. What is this from? <laughs> well, I'm sure it's not as popular as I am, so it won't be as much of a challenge, I'm sure. Yeah, so, that's probably so. true. <laughs> well, so I hear your family loves the outdoors. What, what is your favorite activity outdoors? We love going to Bear Lake a lot, and just anything on the water is what we love. So we go up there probably five or six times a year during the summer, and just anything, and we like hiking a lot too, and so... Just anything that's not inside is fun for us. Do you ski at all? I do ski, but I'm not very good at it. And honestly, the only place I've ever been skiing is at Little Beaver Mountain up at uh, Bear Lake. And so uh, we go there occasionally, but I haven't gone in a few years. 
So what are some of your, your personal favorite hobbies? Besides spending time with my family, I love playing racquetball. I really like uh, fitness a lot, just working out and being active. And uh, I like playing the guitar, but with my kids present all the time, I don't get to do that one very often. Uh, but that's And I like reading a lot too, but that's pretty much it. You know, cool. I agree with you, Ryan, on, on the guitar. My kids tell me all the time, Dad, it's not time for that now. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I pull mine out and I think, is this the last time I ever want to see this? Because that's what I need to consider. When I, I have two three-year-old twins and they are into absolutely everything. And I think, you know, they're just going to rip one of those strings right <laughs> off and probably break the backboard. But, you know. Well, I, I have I have five year old twins and they mine have not done that yet. So, oh, okay. so we're we're so good there. Yeah, it's looking good for you. Do you have a passion for any any certain kind of books? Some favorite uh, favorite genre? To be honest, I'm kind of a personal finance nerd, so I read a lot of personal finance books, and I don't find very many other people that are as enthusiastic about that. So, um, but that's probably the thing I like reading the most. Why do you geek out on on finance books? What, what's it about finance books? I don't know. I think I just find the way that money works endlessly fascinating. Not that I really care to aspire to be super wealthy or anything. I just think that it's interesting how different people can have the same amount of money, but one does X, Y, and Z with it and makes way more money or has it more protected or whatever. And I just find that interesting. Well, when we have our next episode on Bitcoin, we'll go through the cryptocurrency and you'll be our next guest, okay? So, <laughs> Okay, well, I'll tell you straight out, I don't have any Bitcoin for sure. <laughs> I did learn that you recently read the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. And I, I think that, that grit is just one of those most elusive values we have today in kids. So what did you like about, about that book, Grit? It just sort of resonated with me. And I'm sure for most physicians, uh, what's in that book is really just would resonate. When you think about what you sort of suffered and slogged through in residency and medical school, it's just this inability to just continually doing things that are hard and challenging and, you know, when I was first in medical school, I sort of didn't always like that challenge. Uh, and in residency, there were times where I downright hated it. But uh, it just sort of resonated to me a little later in life that I saw the real value of, you know, really struggling with something and trying to figure it out and getting to where you then become expert at it has a lot of value. And so the book just talked a lot about how how they measure that and what it predicts in life and how you can try to instill it in your children. So I just thought it was really kind of close to home for me. Well, I think that's an awesome aspiration and being able to pass on that, that value of grit to your kids and your kids are fortunate to have you for sure. I think you're right. You know, becoming physicians, we've all been through that, that challenge. And, but if you, if you weren't a doctor, what would you do? What else would you think about? I really enjoy teaching a great deal. And so I think I probably would have been a college professor. Uh, I toyed with the idea of being a pharmacist for a long time because I worked as a pharmacy technician for about five years, but uh, luckily I saw that counting to 30, 140 times a day was not quite what I wanted to do. I mean, pharmacists do much, much more than that, but it just wasn't, it wasn't in line as much with the ability to help people that I wanted. So I probably would be a teacher of some kind, physiology professor or something in college, maybe, I don't know. What we've gotten into is just so rewarding and so fulfilling in how we're able to serve our patients. And so are, are there any inspiring experiences with patients that really reinforce your decision to become a physician? Yeah, well, I mean, I get them all the time. You know, uh, one of the reasons I went into rheumatology is because I personally like fitness a great deal. I really like it, the idea that I can take somebody's activity level and I can give them back the ability to be as active as they want. So I get that pretty regularly and it's very fulfilling. 
I have a young man who I've taken care of his entire life that I diagnosed with JRA with the help of great rheumatologists who is being treated by a biological whose life is really disrupted by not being able to serve a volunteer mission for his church because of COVID-19 disrupting that. And so what, what has been, from your perspective, the biggest impact of the whole COVID-19 pandemic on your rheumatology patients? There's been some good and some bad. To be honest, we have not, knock on wood here, had anybody in our clinic develop COVID-19 yet, as far as we are aware, which is super awesome. So the good thing is, is that it gets us much more, people are asking much, much more about their immunosuppression. And not only just the, like the patients, but their spouses and their significant others and other things. And so that's really good because we always want to talk to them about this, but it gives us a chance as well to sort of cap their fears, if you will. You know, like for instance, people hear the word immunosuppressive and they think, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to just live in a bubble and I'm going to catch everything that we get. Well, then we sit down and we talk to them and we say, well, say for instance, a biologic like Humira, which is very common. The immunosuppressive effect is the risk is three to 5% per year for infection. So, you know, that means a hundred people could be on the drug for a year and three to five of them are going to get an infection that they wouldn't have if they weren't on Humira. So that part's really, really, really good that it sort of has opened up our discussions for what immunosuppression really means and why we feel like we can safely do it. The bad side of it, though, is unfortunately some people have sort of foregone therapy that really could change their day-to-day life because of fear of catching the coronavirus and and what to do about it if that happens. And, And just a little side note that comes in with that, not necessarily immunosuppression, but Unfortunately, a lot of things that the news has reported lately about different medications that have come up simply isn't true. And so we get a lot of people that don't even want to take NSAIDs because some news, something or another reported that there were higher levels of ibuprofen in the people who died from COVID than people who didn't. <laughs> and so there have been some stuff there. But again, it's, it's always nice because it opens up a reason that our patients have questions that we can talk to them about. And I think hopefully what it usually does, or at least I hope this happens, I don't know, but they gain a little bit more confidence in us taking care of them when we can sit down and talk to them. Well, no, here's what the real risks are and here's what they aren't. And here are some misconceptions about it. So that's kind of been what the effect of it has been. And then obviously a lot of patients are a little bit afraid to come into clinic. And so that has presented its own challenges, but that's not unique to rheumatology at all, I think. My young man has benefited from the the first part of that you discussed is as the data has come out about the the relative safety risk of those with Humira, they have finally approved his application to be able to go serve his church mission now. And so after six months of waiting, and so that's been wonderful for him to have that data that you understand about the the relative risk of Humira. And, and, uh, And I hope that you will get those patients back in your clinic and be able to take good care of them now that they feel more comfortable that they can even take ibuprofen now. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we like seeing them. So Ryan, I'm, I'm wondering then SARS-CoV-2 is, is new in our world right now, but what is new in the world of rheumatoid arthritis? I think one of the most important things I talk with patients about is, you know, when we diagnose them with RA, I always tell them, you know, you're, you're going to have this for the rest of your life. We, we don't have a cure for it. So, um, and if you ever find one, you guys call me and talk to me only, and we'll start this nice little side <laughs> thing and uh, our great grandchildren will retire trillionaires. But um, so a couple of new things. One is that the list of medications that we have that work very well for RA is huge now. I think there are probably, if I were to count them off the top of my head, there are at least 10 or 12 different, very effective 
therapies that treat RA and treat it very well to the point where most people who have RA are able to live a fairly normal life as long as they see their rheumatologist and take their medications. Some other kind of new things that are coming up is um, the ability to eventually, hopefully, predict RA. They did a study about uh, 10 or 12 years ago with the military that blood banked a lot of samples for many, many years where they looked back and showed that rheumatoid factor and CCP antibodies could show up sometimes as much as 14 years before the disease itself. Now, most of the time, it's not that long. It's only two or three years, but they're looking now into a bunch of antibodies that are gene markers that say, you know, if you have this, 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 and this, your likelihood of developing RA is very high, you know, somewhere around 70 or 80%. And the idea that what we hopefully will get to with that is that someday we may be able to run some kind of a panel, kind of like, uh, like I understand they're able to do now with um, antidepressant medications, where they can check and say, well, these are the ones that you're going to respond to. But we would be able to say, we can check this, say, when you get your first annual physical when you're 18 and say, oh, yeah, the likelihood that you're going to develop rheumatoid arthritis is this high. And then there's some debate about, well, maybe we would start something like hydroxychloroquine and potentially prevent RA. Now, we're a long ways away from that, but that's kind of some stuff that's new on the horizon. Then the other thing that I'd say that is sort of new is just our ability to take care of patients that have vasculitis has dramatically changed. Rituximab is amazing. Um, and for instance, a common disease that we sort of see fairly often the, is called granulomatosis with polyangiitis, which used to be called Wegner's. It used to be the only treatment for that was cytoxin, which is a really bad cytotoxic chemotherapy drug that has a whole host of side effects and it didn't work that well. And just within the last five or 10 years, they've really been able to show that rituximab, uh, you can give two doses of it and it takes it away. And then you give a dose once every six months for two or three years, and it's like 90% effective. Maybe not 90%, that's probably a little high. It's probably closer to 60 or 70, but still. So things like that are really kind of changing where rheumatology is headed, I guess. You know, Scott, one of the fun things about these podcasts is, you know, I love when I, I learned that a disease that I learned forever has a new name. And so going from Wegener's granulomatosis, now they know it's got a new name. So thank you very much, Ryan. <laughs> well, the reason why is uh, they found out Wegener apparently was a Nazi sympathizer. And so they said, yeah, we, we probably shouldn't name anything after him. That's probably appropriate. But yeah, and again, thanks for helping find a new name. That's great. <laughs> they, they did the same thing with, uh, with Ryder syndrome. Ryan, you know, we've always been kind of old school and in, uh, in how we've done a lot of our anti-inflammatories, you know, and, and in pediatrics, we were just so careful with the S word, steroids. So in adults, you know, are steroids still used? And if so, you know, how and when are those used and how much do people prescribe? Well, so they're definitely still used. And the, the reason why they're used is because we don't have anything in rheumatology that works quick, except for steroids. Um, so most of our therapies, things like methyltrexate, Humira, all those things take usually two to three months before they really start working. And you hate to see somebody just suffer <laughs> endlessly for those months. So you ship, typically we'll put them on steroids um, to sort of bridge the gap while we wait for that. Um, and sometimes some people require chronic steroids because it's the only thing we have that controls their disease. For instance, really, really refractory lupus tends to do that quite frequently. I tell you one thing that they're not as good for, but is used quite frequently is they're not a great diagnostic tool. So I see very frequently, you know, somebody comes in, they have all this joint pain, they get given 60 milligrams of prednisone a day for two weeks and they feel amazing. And so everybody's convinced that they have a rheumatological disease. 
And then they come see me and I say, no, you, you know, you got a little bit of osteoarthritis. And so I guess that the key is just to know kind of when you should use them and what they're really helpful for and what dose is appropriate. So anytime that you really suspect that there's an autoimmune disease, it's definitely reasonable to try a short course of steroids. The key is just that this is not the only diagnostic approach, right? There's got to be some other things that support what's going on. The other thing is that I would say starting at 60 a day is probably almost always too much. From a rheumatologist standpoint, when I use 60 milligrams of prednisone a day, it's only when I'm trying to put out a fire that's going to kill the patient, like lupus nephritis or diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, where they're bleeding into their lungs, and, and this will kill the patient in a couple of weeks if you don't do something about it. So I'd say, you know, if you're trying to start something because you have some inflammatory joint pain, usually 15 to 20 milligrams of prednisone a day will wipe out most rheumatoid arthritis. It will wipe out polymyalgia rheumatica. It will take care of most of the arthritis that comes from the connective tissue diseases, and it will help pretty significantly with psoriatic arthritis. You could go up to 30 milligrams a day pretty easily with psoriatic arthritis because it's a little bit more refractory, and you'd still be within the realm of what is going to be fairly safe. The other thing is that it's actually very helpful too to know you know, if somebody responds to 60 milligrams of prednisone a day, all that tells me is that they still have a pulse. <laughs> but if they respond to, you know, lower doses of prednisone, then I start to think, okay, maybe this really has an underlying inflammatory component to it. It's not just like dropping an atomic bomb on everything and trying to put everything out. You know, because I joke with patients sometimes, you know, I think I could break somebody's arm and then give them 60 milligrams of prednisone and they'd feel fantastic. So if you start somewhere between 20 and 30 a day, that's probably going to be enough. And I'd say closer to 20 is probably what you'd need for most things that you're going to see. I'm not a clinician, uh, but, you know, in my clinical pathology training, I did consult with many and I, had, I took a ton of calls from other family medicine physicians usually, and they would ask me kind of about the ANA, just kind of getting more granular, more specific about the ANA. What do we understand about the ANA and what it means? This is super, super helpful for anybody because um, uh, this is, I mean, I hope this doesn't dry up all my business though, because like 70% of what I do is evaluate positive ANA. So um, <laughs> please keep sending them to me. So I won't answer all the questions. I guess I'll leave a little bit there, but so the first thing is to understand what you're looking for when you're looking for an ANA is you really should be thinking about the connective tissue diseases. And just to clarify, uh, there are five of those, um, but the most common ones, or there's actually six, but this is lupus, uh, Sjogren's syndrome, scleroderma or uh, systemic sclerosis, polymyositis and dermatomyositis. It also can show up positive in rheumatoid arthritis, but that's not usually what you check it for. So then the other thing to understand about it is that this test has to do with what the pretest probability is. So if your pretest probability is high and you check an ANA and it's positive, it's very, very helpful. But these tests are quite sensitive, but not at all specific. So if you're in a low pretest probability and you check something that has a high sensitivity to it, you're going to pick up a lot of people who have a positive ANA that don't have any clinical pathology associated with that. Another thing to understand is that the ANA actually also has um, two different methods that it's run by. Um, and this may be hard for clinicians to figure out without just sort of calling their lab and asking them. One is the direct method, which is basically an ELISA. This is a more sensitive version of it. So it picks up absolutely everything, but it has a decently high false positive rate. The other one is what's called IFA or immunofluorescence antibodies. And that's the more accurate less sensitive, but more specific way of testing this. Um, and that you just have to call your lab and ask which one they do. Uh, a general rule is most of them in the community, the direct is cheaper. So that's the one that most of people get. 
Um, but then understanding that the ANA also uh, has three parts to it that are helpful. One is just, do they see the antibody? So is it positive or negative? That's helpful, but the more helpful information comes after that, and that is that it, they titer it. So they basically try to dilute it as many times as they can to see whether or not it disappears. And obviously the more dilutions that it's still present, the more of it it's around, the more likely it's likely to be related to a disease state. So you may see when you get your test results back, it'll say a one colon something, usually like one to 80 or one to 320. Um, so the higher that second number, the more likely it is to be related to a disease. Um, and I, just a general kind of rule of thumb, if it's less than one to 320, odds are it's not related to a disease. But but again, uh, you should definitely send that to a rheumatologist to figure out. <laughs> we appreciate that. You know, you, know, you know the math. And so thank you. <laughs> the other thing with that uh, is that uh, the third part is the pattern that they see. And there are a lot of patterns and there's a whole huge discussion you can have about that. But the one pattern you should pay attention to is if it ever, well, two patterns, I guess. One, if it ever says anti-centromere, that actually has a pretty high association with systemic sclerosis, and that should be evaluated by a rheumatologist always. The other one is one called the dense, fine, speckled pattern. Not just speckled, it's dense, fine, speckled. And that one has a very low association with any of the autoimmune diseases. So if you get you know, an ANA that comes back and it's one to 80 and it's a dense, fine, speckled pattern, the likelihood that that's gonna show up to be something like lupus is extremely small. And then just one last thing about this is to understand as well that 10 to 15% of the population have a positive ANA that has no clinical relevance. And it can have clinical relevance for other things that are not related to rheumatology, like you can get a positive ANA in Crohn's disease, you can get a positive ANA with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you can get a positive ANA with pernicious anemia. Just understand that it helps if you know what you're looking for first and you're looking for a connective tissue disease, and then the results that you get back need to be always interpreted with a grain of salt. And the most important thing I can tell you is that this is never diagnostic for anything. So there's nothing in the world of rheumatology where if you just have a positive A&E, you definitely have something. I don't know about you, Scott, but when I hear Ryan share all those facts and comments, it probably is less likely for me not to refer, but more likely to refer, knowing how complicated that is. So thank you for, for all that. Oh, yeah. And, and again, like we say, like Dr. <laughs> my partner, Dr. Austin, and I always say, you know, ANAs keep the lights on. So we don't mind seeing them at all. Uh, they, we do it all the time and we're very comfortable with it. So we're happy to help out in any way we can. But hopefully understanding just the framework helps you know kind of what you're looking at before you send them to us. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton of crossover there, and it's also a very non-specific test. It's really fun. We, we're a little masochistic. It's fun to interpret. <laughs> um, it can be valuable as well. Um, and Dr. Oh, Hogan, yeah, I, yeah it's, you, you see the value in it, so you still we still order it. <laughs> On to another another antibody. Let's talk about anti-CCP antibodies and how those antibodies correlate with RF. Um, is there any overlapping or any divergent pathology involved there? Yeah, and so just to be clear uh, what we're talking about, this is CCP, which is citrullinated citric peptide, or more commonly the anti-CCP antibody. This is an antibody that's very specific for rheumatoid arthritis. And typically when you're looking for rheumatoid arthritis, if you order a rheumatoid factor, usually you order a CCP antibody with it. The relationship, I don't know of any specific relationship between the two actual antibodies themselves, but they are both related to the disease state. Um, and there is divergent pathways. So you can have, for instance, everybody knows you can have what's called seronegative rheumatoid arthritis, which is where you don't have rheumatoid arthritis, or you don't have the rheumatoid factor or the CCP antibody. You can also have what's rheumatoid factor positive, 
where you don't have a CCP antibody, but you have a positive rheumatoid factor and they have rheumatoid arthritis, or you can have what's called double seropositive, where you have rheumatoid factor positive and CCP positive antibodies in somebody who has rheumatoid arthritis. And they, they do diverge and they do tell us different things. So generally speaking, anybody that comes in who has clear cut, obvious they've got rheumatoid arthritis, really high titer rheumatoid factor, really high titer CCP antibody, that is a different disease than people who have seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. So the seronegative rheumatoid arthritis tends to be a, a milder version of the disease usually and is more responsive to medications and other things. The double seropositive is more predictive that they're going to develop erosive disease, which is where the disease actually eats the bone and causes erosions. They're also more likely to develop, if they have the CCP antibody, they're more likely to develop uh, rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease. And typically it tells me as a rheumatologist when they have both, I need to be very aggressive right up front at trying to get on top of their disease because it's a bit of a stubborn disease. And sometimes it takes me going all the way to a biologic within a few months to get on top of it and get disease control. The other thing is the CCP antibody is typically something that uh, we see more in people who have smoked. And it is helpful because we see that if that's positive and they smoke, then the first thing we tell them is you got to quit smoking because that makes your <laughs> rheumatoid arthritis much more different. And then um, this is probably not something that primary care would deal with very often, but we also know that having the positive CCP antibody tells me that if I have to, you are more likely to respond to rituximab than if you don't have the CCP antibody. And rituximab is a, a biologic that we use for rheumatoid arthritis that's fairly severe. I appreciated that. I, I was worried that there was an antibody, just an anti-Russian CCCP antibody I didn't know about. I also tell my pediatric patients that they should stop smoking if they have asthma as well, you know, because, you know, I don't want any of those four or five-year-olds going up on their, their inhaled steroids when they could just stop smoking as well. So we got to tell everybody. <laughs> I think smoking was summed up so well recently by my dental hygienist. She says, yeah, because that's good for absolutely nothing. <laughs> I love it. I said, yeah, I think you're right. You know, as you, as, you, as you kind of, you know, really good lab guys, you know, throw out a lot of these terms, the question kind of came to mind, are there any tests that you want primary care physicians to have ordered before they send them to you, that things you want to see that have happened before they show up in your office? No, not particularly. A, a one small pet peeve I have is when I get a referral sure. for a positive ANA and I look through all the stuff they send me and there's no lab work, including an ANA. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, the, I would say, please send the actual lab work for which you're wanting me to evaluate. Um, but other than that, no, I, I would say, you know, generally speaking, we really like taking care of patients and we're happy to help out because we understand that, you know, rheumatology is a pretty esoteric field. We deal with a lot of crazy stuff that most people, including physicians, have never even heard of. So if you want our help, we are always happy to help. So if you put in a referral and, you know, it's for something you're just saying, hey, this this really just doesn't make any sense. And I think it probably is rheumatological. We're always happy to take a look. And whatever you've done first, that is always going to be enough. Um, and if, you, you know, because obviously when you come see me, I'm going to order whatever the heck I want and whatever I need. And sometimes it's more helpful if you just let me order what I need, because then I don't end up with a lot of stuff that I don't uh, I don't necessarily need. And it makes it so that um, you aren't feeling overburdened by feeling like, oh, you know, I got to, check all this stuff, looking for random antibodies that I can't pronounce and don't know what they're for, especially because there's sometimes there's a lag time in between when you can come see us, right? And so for the primary care doctor, I feel bad if you get stuck, you know, ordering this anti-HMG-CR reductase antibody 
that you're not familiar with. And if it comes back positive, you're like, okay, well, you need to see rheumatology, but then your patients are questioning you saying, well, what does this mean? And, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, so I, I, no, there's no requirement. I'm, I'm glad that you lifted the burden off my shoulders that I have to appear intelligent and order fancy tests that you'll take care of all the, the, the high level things. So thank you. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we are happy to see patients and take care of them anytime. So recently I've had a lot of interest in, you know, lifestyle interventions um, for common treatments. I found that some of them are actually fairly effective and I'm wondering, are there any of those lifestyle interventions that are effective in rheumatology just overall? Yeah, stopping smoking, definitely. Um, that one, legit <laughs> and for ankylosing spondylitis, the same. So stopping smoking does dramatically help rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. For ankylosing spondylitis, interestingly, in the most recent guidelines, which were put out just uh, less than a year ago, um, regular physical therapy and physical activity does change the course of disease in ankylosing spondylitis. For osteoarthritis, the most recent guidelines suggest that exercise of any kind helps osteoarthritis, no matter what joint it involves, even the hands, for reasons that we have no clue of, but it seems to help. I get patients ask me all the time about dietary stuff. They say, you know, hey, if I quit eating processed carbs or sugars or whatever for my rheumatoid arthritis, will it go away or will it help it? And unfortunately, the data on this is pretty mixed and most of it is not really very helpful. One, because these studies are almost impossible to do, right? You know, how well do you know what people are really eating? You know, are they, are they sneaking chocolate eclairs on Saturday night and not telling you about it? Yeah, probably. There's not a significant enough evidence to say that things like eating an anti-inflammatory diet or cutting out processed sugars or things like that help with rheumatoid arthritis. But I will say anecdotally, I have some patients that say, you know, I quit eating carbs and I feel so much better. So what my general rule of thumb is to patients is I say, okay, you know, if you're thinking about cutting something out of your diet, I say, go ahead and try it. And as long as two things happen, you should keep doing it. And one is, does it make you feel better? And two, do you not want to kill yourself? Right? Because if you tell me you are having, you know, a kale shake for breakfast and a kale salad for lunch and you're having kale chips for dinner and your joints feel amazing, but you have no joy in your life and you just wish you could eat chocolate, it's probably really not worth it because the science isn't there to support it. So generally speaking, I tell them to try things and if they feel like it's helpful, then go ahead and do it. But I don't have any firm recommendations because there just isn't the data to back it up, except for smoking. That one I tell everybody, just quit doing it, especially the five-year-olds. <laughs> Not worth yes. <laughs> well, you and I would be on the same same campaign then. Right? That's awesome. So, <laughs> you know, Ryan, there's this, this Seinfeld episode where Jerry thinks a dermatologist thinks too much about herself because she talks about how a patient who appreciated her for saving her life, and, and Jerry's wondering how fixing pimples is life saving until Jerry is reminded about oh, skin cancer. That's right, skin cancer. So, when do physicians need to emergently send a referral to rheumatology? And I guess the second part of that is. Like the experience you shared earlier, what are some of the life-saving and quality of life differences that rheumatologists make? This has a lot to do differently, too, with where the rheumatologist is at. Most people don't know this, but rheumatologists do sometimes cover inpatient work. Um, I don't ever anymore, but when I was a fellow, I did. And you take care of the, the sickest of the sick in the ICU. <laughs> um, and so those patients, I feel like we really are saving their lives. And that, that's people that are like young lupus patients that present with lupus nephritis, where the lupus is just actively attacking their kidneys and it's and it's going to put them on dialysis if you don't do something. 
There's another rare thing that can happen with lupus that is hard even for rheumatologists to recognize where you get something called diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. And this is exactly what it sounds like. You are diffusely bleeding from all the alveoli in your lungs. And, and that can only go on for about a week and it will kill the patient. So that that is the, the situation where you really, you swoop in as a rheumatologist and you say, oh yeah, throw a bunch of steroids at them. They'll be fine. But that that's not the side that most people see. So when you're a family practice or an internist or something or anybody, Anytime that you really suspect that there's a vasculitis present, that's something you need to, and you write on it, you just write the word vasculitis. And I always make sure whether I think from what you're looking at that you're completely off base or not at all, or, or this person has obviously got something, I will try to get them in my clinic as quick as I can because that, that can kill somebody and it can have real serious you know, bowel infarctions, kidney infarctions, strokes, things that are life altering. So, and how, how do you guess whether or not they're having vasculitis, I guess is the big thing. It's when they have, the general rule of thumb is when they have a ton of systemic symptoms that don't make sense. They're complaining that their, their hearing is changing and they're getting weird nasal crusting up their nose and they're coughing and they're losing weight and they're having fevers and they look like they are, they've aged 20 years in the last three months and you, you've seen them and they're having joint pain and they're developing rashes on their skin. You know, something that just doesn't seem like one thing could explain it all, but it's those types of things. Then you say, this sounds maybe like this could be a vasculitis and you send them to us and we'll emergently work them in. And then something that's not really emergent, but something that I usually try to get in pretty quick because it's downright debilitating is if you see somebody that you really think has polymyalgia rheumatica, that can take somebody from being pretty healthy, walkie talkie, still working to not being able to roll over in bed and take care of their own toileting needs within a matter of a couple of days. And it doesn't get better unless you treat it with prednisone. So if that happens and I see somebody and it looks like, oh, this is probably PMR, I usually get those people in pretty quickly. So again, for the vasculitis, the things to think about is recurrent abdominal pain, fevers, weight loss, skin stuff, and then just other weird symptoms that don't make sense. So what I, what I took away from that then, Ryan, is any patient I have in a pediatric that has nasal crusting, I'll send to you, or anybody with abdominal pain, I'll send to you as well. It's bloody nasal crusting. <laughs> We're oh, okay. All right. Otherwise, they give you about 10 patients a day with stomach pain and, and crusty noses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't see children anymore, by the way. <laughs> they have to be over the age of 18, so. <laughs> no, you're good. What, what is kind of your, your favorite thing about rheumatology? Why, why did you go into rheumatology versus all the other things you could have chosen? To be fair for my situation, I went into rheumatology because I couldn't get into ophthalmology. Short story, but okay. uh, the good Lord, I think, knew that that's what I needed because I think the way I think and the way I approach problems works a lot better for rheumatology than it does for ophthalmology. But for me, it was a combination of a bunch of things. But uh, one, I, I got a degree in microbiology, so I, I had a lot of immunology in college. So that was sort of right up my alley. And then I, uh, I worked as a pharmacy technician for about five years, and I always just loved learning about the mechanisms of drugs. And the mechanisms of drugs in rheumatology is really intricate and very interesting. And so I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And then, like I said before, I really enjoy fitness a lot. And the main thing I just love is being able to say, you know, I can, I can give somebody back the ability to go cycle if they want to cycle or to be able to go walking with their wife at night, you know, or whatever it is, no matter how much or how little their activity is, I don't really care. But I love being able to take somebody that gets a pretty debilitating disease and take them just back to where their baseline was. So that's probably the most stuff that I like the most about it. Well, I love both your transparency and lack of guile for yourself. And I love the real world example about, you know, where rheumatology fits into improving quality of life. It's awesome. 
What do you wish that rheumatologists wished every other specialty knew about them? First off, uh, we're not scary people. We're, we're usually pretty nerdy <laughs> um, and very approachable. I mean, the surgeons get all the, you know, the hard street cred for being honoring the operating room. And we, we clearly are much more honoring than they are. But, you know, no. um, what, I, what I wish I could help other people to see is just understand the process of how rheumatology works. Unfortunately, in our field, we, we don't have, you know, you test this and you absolutely have this disease. You know, I'm always sort of jealous of cardiology, right? You come in, you got ST elevations and you got an elevated troponin, you're having an MI, right? <laughs> it's, it's not likely to be something else. So we don't have any, any one diagnostic test for pretty much anything. So how we approach things is we try to take everything. So I take what the patient says to me and I ask them a bunch of very specific questions I take everything that I see on a very detailed physical exam. I take all of their blood work, all of their imaging, and I try to put it into one thing that seems the most like something else. And the hard part with that is, you know, our, I always joke with our patients that our diseases are all completely illiterate. They don't read any of the textbooks we write about them. And so there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of just nuance to it. And sometimes I think I feel like I, I maybe frustrate other physicians. They send something to me. And they're hoping I give them this crystal clear answer. And I send it back and I say, well, it could be this, 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 or this. I'm going to treat it like it's this, but it, it may not be that. And then not only that, it may actually change from being that to something else in a matter of a few years. So we deal with a lot of gray area. And the other sort of frustration that a lot of people have with rheumatology is to say, you know, I want to get you to see a rheumatologist, but the wait, wait is three months. And a part of that is just because we have to gather so much information to, to get as clear of a picture as we can. And so like, for instance, for me, my new patient visits are 40 minutes long and my return visits are all 20 minutes long. And I, I only spend about three minutes of that time doing my paperwork. The rest of it's all just spent with the patient trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And so that's why it takes so long to get in to see us. And there aren't very many of us either. So that sort of compounds the problem. And then I guess the other thing too is that uh, we like to think we're really smart, uh, but we're not Dr. House. <laughs> and sometimes people <laughs> send us stuff and they're like, oh, I just don't have any idea what this is. Let room figure it out. Um, and and we're always- guy. Give the smart guy. Yeah, oh, well, we're always happy to give you our two cents, but sometimes we're like, mm, I don't know what that is either, but it, it's not rheumatological, I can tell you that. So, but just understanding the process of how we approach things, um, I don't know if it's helpful or not, but I wish that other people could see kind of what that looks like from our standpoint. That's wonderful. Thanks for that, that insight. Let's get like at the end, let's get some like real specific here with some terminology, because I, I know if you don't deal with these every single day, like I, I don't deal with this every single day. And so it's still the terminology is still a little bit fuzzy for me. Some of these disease states because the, the names all kind of sound like similar. Um <laughs> Well, we're nerds, but we're not creative at naming stuff. That's for sure. <laughs> so what is the difference between, say, a mixed connective tissue disease and an undifferentiated con connective tissue disease or overlap syndrome or, or sec secondary syndromes? What are, what's the difference there? Yeah, and this is, this is a fantastic question. And this is something that I think will be really helpful for uh, primary care doctors. You don't need to understand all the ins and outs of this. That's our job, right? But just understanding what we're talking about when we communicate something to you and when you communicate something back to us so that we're on the same page. So the easiest way to understand, this is actually four separate things, those things that you just mentioned. And the easiest way to explain it is to explain what the easiest things are first. So the first thing that's the easiest to understand is that of an overlap syndrome. 
Um, and I'll tell you, most of this applies primarily to the connective tissue diseases, which again, this is lupus, scleroderma or systemic sclerosis, uh, Sjogren's syndrome, dermatomyositis, polymyositis, and then mixed connective tissue disease, which I'll talk about in a minute. And overlap syndrome is where you meet clear cut diagnostic criteria for two separate connective tissue diseases. And it's not you have part of one and part of another. You fully have criteria for one and you fully have criteria for another, and they have simply overlapped in the same patient. The most common way that this happens is with systemic sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis, where they have everything that looks like systemic sclerosis, but they also have a positive rheumatoid factor and a positive CCP antibody and erosive arthritis on exam. So they clearly have both diseases overlapping. And another one that's not very common, but that does occur is that of uh, an overlap between rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, which we sometimes jokingly call rupus, um, which is where you have <laughs> rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. So that's the easiest one to understand. Probably the second easiest one to understand is that of what is a secondary syndrome. So this is where somebody has one primary rheumatoid or uh, connective tissue disease, such as rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, but then they develop some symptoms and maybe an antibody or two of another one, um, but they don't meet full criteria for the second one usually. Um, and they wouldn't have the second one at all if they didn't have the first one. So the most classic example with this is secondary Sjogren's syndrome. So it's very common that patients who have rheumatoid arthritis or who have lupus develop uh, dry eyes, dry mouth, vaginal dryness, dry skin, and some excessive fatigue. And they maybe even have a positive SSA antibody or something like that, but they wouldn't by, their, by themselves, they wouldn't meet full criteria for Sjogren's syndrome. And the thing with the secondary syndromes is those are also tend to be much milder than the primary syndrome. For instance, secondary syndrome is a much different, milder disease than primary Sjogren's. So that's overlap syndromes and that's secondary syndromes. But then you get to the two that are hardest for people to differentiate. And that's what's the difference between undifferentiated connective tissue disease and mixed connective tissue disease. And I think the easiest way to think about this is to think mixed connective tissue disease is its own very specific disease. Some people think about it like it's just this hodgepodge of a bunch of stuff that looks like a connective tissue disease. And so we call it mixed connective tissue disease, but that's not what it is. It has very defining characteristics and is its own disease. And what those defining characteristics are, are usually presents with Raynaud's, inflammatory arthritis that looks like rheumatoid arthritis, and then there's a very high prevalence of the development of myositis and interstitial lung disease in these patients. And then the kicker is that it always has to have a very elevated RNP antibody. You can't have a diagnosis of mixed connective tissue disease if you don't have a positive RNP antibody. So that's mixed connective tissue disease. And then what's the other thing that is far more common and what most people I think are trying to refer to when they say mixed connective tissue disease is undifferentiated connective tissue disease. And what this is, is this is where somebody has some signs and symptoms that look like, oh, this is probably a connective tissue disease, but they don't actually meet enough of the criteria to be diagnosed with any of them. And so this is what I jokingly call, it's like diet lupus, right? Like <laughs> it's like lupus, but lighter. And so what this usually presents is, this is like somebody that comes in with some joint pain, they have Raynaud's, a positive ANA, and a positive SSB antibody. But they don't have dry eyes and dry mouth, so they don't have Sjogren's. They don't meet enough of the criteria for lupus, but clearly there's something in that realm that they have. 
And that's usually a milder disease that most of the time will either come on and then go away or come on and just stay with the same diseases or disease state and stay that way for their whole life. But about a third of them do eventually within two to three years progress to develop a full connective tissue disease. So they'll have new stuff that shows up that puts them in the realm of like a full diagnosis of lupus. So UCTD or undifferentiated connective tissue disease is actually quite common. And that's what most people that have the positive ADA that have a real disease of mine end up getting diagnosed with. Whereas mixed connective tissue disease is the Raynaud's, the inflammatory arthritis, the interstitial lung disease, the myositis, and the really high titer RNP antibody is actually quite rare. I've only seen it um, maybe three or four times. Thank you. This is awesome. But so the undifferentiated connective tissue disease is kind of like pre-diabetes. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way to think about it. It's like pre-lupus or pre-Sjogren's or it's it hasn't decided which connective tissue disease it wants to be when it grows up yet. But it, we say, well, yeah, okay, this is something that probably is real. This is not just somebody that has a positive ANA and has fibromyalgia. You know, this is probably a real connective tissue disease. And that's where we are going to treat it as though that is the case. And these people, you put them on hydroxychloroquine and usually they, they do great. So it, there's indication for actual treatment as well. I don't know about you, Scott, but when I, uh, I know I've had a wonderful experience and I've been able to come away feeling so much wiser than I was when I started the, the beginning of the interview. And, uh, and so I just so appreciate what, uh, what Ryan's been sharing with us today. And so um, I, I think on the flip side, though, Ryan, is, you know, I, I do feel so much wiser and know what to watch for. But you've mentioned a few times the ability to get patient, patients in to see you. How can people get hold of you? How do they get consults from you for care? One thing is to understand, we do go by referral only. Um, and just because a lot of people don't understand exactly what we do. And um, so if we just saw everything that came in the door, we our, our wait period would be eight months. Um, so we go by referral only. And what happens is you have your primary care provider, or if you're a provider, you simply send a referral over to our office. And to be honest, I don't know my fax number, <laughs> but uh, what you can do is you can call our office phone number and you can talk to my MA and she'll give you our fax number. And it just changed recently. So I'd probably give you the wrong one anyways. Uh, but my office phone number is 801-773-4840 and extension 3820 takes you right to my MA April. And if you want to send in a referral, what happens is uh, you send in a referral. I personally look at every single one of them. Um, I read through all of it and then I determine whether or not I should see the patient. Um, I don't see, say no very often. I say no when it's something that clearly is not even in my realm. You know, like they're sending me Hashimoto's thyroiditis, right? I don't take care of that at all. I... I I don't say no very often. Uh, I will be very honest though. The one thing I do say no for, I do not manage fibromyalgia. Uh, I diagnose it all the time, but I don't manage it. So if the referral is only for fibromyalgia and you're not worried about anything else, I probably won't see the patient. But otherwise I pretty much see all of them, but I review them all first to make sure that I have a sense of what it is. And sometimes what happens is if I don't have enough information, I'll just write you, I'll have my MA call your office and just say, what is it that you're worried about? Um, and have you done uh, any of the workup that's in this realm that, you you know, like I said, sometimes I get a positive ANA and there's no ANA attached. And so I'm like, can you just send that over? But that's generally the process. And then we, uh, I go through the referral, referrals pretty much every single day. And so usually once you put the referral into my office, it's two to three days at the most before my MA calls the patient and tries to schedule them. And right now my schedule for new patients is booked out about six weeks. But if there's something emergent or something you really are super worried about, I always try to work people in as quick as I can. Gout, not so much. I don't work as hard to work that one in, but 
<laughs> so that's kind of how the process works for me. There have been two really cool things that have come out of BMJ, you know, in regards to COVID-19. And, you know, one of them was about the, the, the kind of the pre-immunity from some T-cell, you know, activity against um, SARS-CoV-2 from, you know, just from historical blood draws. The other one that came out that was really cool was, I don't know if you had any thoughts about the, the British Medical Journal looking at rheumatology patients on hydroxychloroquine and its impact on mortality and morbidity in those patients. I know it's a difficult study to say, how do we differentiate hydroxychloroquine, you know, in a control group and a test group without having, you know, so many people on it and who knows when they'll be exposed. And, uh, but I thought that's a really, really cool study they did in the BMJ looking at those rheumatological patients, rheumatology patients. To be honest, I have not read that article. I will tell you my opinion about hydroxychloroquine in this situation. As you know, uh, rheumatologists probably prescribe hydroxychloroquine 10 times more than anybody else. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it, the whole COVID-19 thing has just made a huge hassle for us, honestly. It jacked the price of it up about four times what it used to be. And now I have to do a prior authorization for a drug that's 50 years old and all that. But the data that I've seen, my own personal opinion, I will state this is my personal opinion, not I don't know that this is backed up by fact, is I don't think hydroxychloroquine treats COVID-19. And I don't think that it prevents it either. And this comes just from my own experience, but as well from one of our physicians at Tanner Clinic was telling me they had recently done a study at the University of Utah where they took rheumatoid arthritis patients, just a small number, it was like 60 patients, and they looked at who got COVID-19 and they then looked back at who of those patients were previously taking hydroxychloroquine for their rheumatoid arthritis. And the infection rate was the exact same. And the dose that they use to treat COVID-19 is the exact same as the dose that we use to treat RA. So I have a hard time believing that when you are taking it on Tuesday, it didn't prevent it, but suddenly you got it on Wednesday and now taking the exact same thing cures it. So that's my thought about it, but I'm not sure if that's what the article was talking about or... Exactly the same, Ryan. It's, it's those who were, were taking their appropriate doses of hydroxychloroquine as part of their disease state management, and then how they did. And it, it said essentially what you said is that the rate of becoming infected, the rate of, you know, as far as the, the types of different symptoms and morbidity is the same, you know, ICU use, ventilator use. The only, the only difference was the um, rate of mortality. And they commented on this specifically because that wasn't one of the endpoints, but it was quite interesting at a power of 0 0.003 was a, a 0.8% mortality versus one2 um, those were not on hydroxychloroquine. So about a, a 50% difference in in the mortality on those um, from 0.8 versus 1.2. That's, so, that's on the people that were on hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine, yeah. So 0.8, yeah. yeah 0.8 per 100 versus 1.2 um, per 100. Oh, so. okay. So and, and, and maybe there's something to that. I don't know. I think the, the reverse of that is what I thought you were actually talking about, that uh, and again, I, I don't I don't watch the news regularly, so I, I don't no, I, know I, I, which I'm news article said not. this, but um, <laughs> the one thing that has really sort of annoyed me about this is I have patients tell me they don't want to take hydroxychloroquine because it's the most dangerous drug on earth. And, you know, apparently what happens is you watch the news and if you even mention the word hydroxychloroquine out loud, you're going to go into a fatal arrhythmia, have heart failure and die. And the truth is that uh, what I always tell my patients about this is the truth is, yes, that is a known thing that can happen with hydroxychloroquine, but rarest of the rare of rare side effects. And I tell people it's as simple as, you know, I personally know pretty much all of the rheumatologists in Utah. We're a pretty small community and there are about 20 or 25 of us. 
Um, we all write prescriptions for this drug probably 10 or 12 times a week. Not wow. a single one of us that I know has ever seen that side effect from that medication. Wow. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are really afraid of taking it for that reason. And I say, oh, no, this is this is just, just the news. Got it wrong. It's as simple as that. But um, I don't know about the decreased mortality. It seems like there could be something there, but I don't know that it warrants putting everybody on it. Which is yeah, what no. I think they were sort of thinking initially. Well, and the challenge was, I mean, I think we all, we all saw that there's a higher mortality when people you know, are put on it when they're already infected and they're trying to treat them with it as part of their regimen. And that had worse outcome. But and say, how do you do, how do you do the study where people are already on it and get control in, in treatment groups, um, but you already have a built-in control group or treatment group with your your patients? And the BMJ journal is exactly as as the University of Utah study was, but you get about ten thousand patients instead of uh, you know a hundred or so. Right, I'll have to I'll have to go look yeah. at that and read that because that that's kind of what I'll, I'll I find it. I find it send it to you. Oh, that'd yeah, be awesome. The mortality, mortality was notably different, but that wasn't an endpoint, so it wasn't as controlled for. That wasn't the purpose of the study, and so you know, it's there's some wiggle room on and how helpful it was, and so, but yeah, so, yeah, and I think yeah. the the way to think about it is probably the same way that we think about things in uh, osteoarthritis, right? Diseases that do not have a cure, any therapy that you try will have some effect. Yep. And interestingly, yep. in like in osteoarthritis, for instance, the placebo effect is extremely high in osteoarthritis mm. of the knees, particularly. And the more invasive you do something, the higher that placebo effect goes and it stays for the entire duration of the study. For instance, you can inject steroid into the knee of osteoarthritis patients and compare it to injecting saline. And the injection of saline carries almost as much benefit all the way out two full years, even oh, wow. though medically there should not be any reason why it does something. So Maybe that's what it is, is that, you know, diseases that just don't work so well, we don't have any treatment for, any amount of hope is hope. And maybe that's what it's clinging to, but maybe there's something to it. But like you said, how do you, how do you do that? You just put everybody on hydroxychloroquine and. Right. And so just, I think it's just too, yeah, too drawn out to do that study well. And so it's, uh, it's hard enough to do the vaccine study, you know, on doing people and then having them get exposed. And so it's, uh. I guess in that similar vein, they've done some work looking at Actemra use. Uh, Actemra is an IL-6 inhibitor that we use for rheumatoid arthritis and sometimes for giant cell arteritis that they've used that they say sometimes shuts down the cytokine storm that leads to rapid downfall and death in patients who have COVID-19. And I think there probably is some benefit to that, but the problem is Actemra costs like $8,000 per shot. And you know, you're not going to be giving that to absolutely everybody. And so- there's probably some some good information that can come from that that will set up what the eventual treatment would be. But uh, I'm not going to recommend everybody go get put on Actemra. You know, that's right. You got extremes <laughs> on both sides. And you got to take all of it into account. Yeah. I'll send the article to you for fun. It's a pretty good, pretty good size study anyway. And you can, you can sort through all the, the fancy rheumatological terms. And so it's. Uh... <laughs> Sounds awesome. That, that would be fantastic. <laughs> This has been such a great interview. Like we've, we've really appreciated talking with you and, and I feel a ton wiser just having learned even, even the terminology, <laughs> getting some more solid on the terminology has been great. I really appreciate you talking with us. Oh yeah. Happy to do it. I, I have to say, I've never been invited to be on a podcast before. I, I had one patient make me a subject of their podcast, which I thought was a little weird because this podcast is about mold. 
but uh <laughs> but uh so yeah it's been awesome it's been a lot of fun and i hope that it's been helpful for people and like we say you know we're always here to help and we i personally really really enjoy seeing patients so if you're ever worried about something or you just want to run something by me you can always call my office and i'll usually call you back and talk to you about it and I, i'm pretty quick to say either okay that's something i definitely need to take a look at or uh yeah maybe not me so anything i can do to help y'all out i'm more than happy to do it uh, thanks, Ryan. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. This podcast has been a production of the Ogden Surgical Medical Society. Your producers were Clark Madsen, MDMS, Teresa Puskedra, MPC, and the board of the Ogden Surgical Medical Society. The executive director is Teresa Puskedra, MPC. Your hosts for tonight were Jason Hoagland, MD, and me, Scott Moore, DO. The editing and sound design done by Colton Gomez, and this is all supported by members of the Ogden Surgical Medical Society like you.